Right, if you have a Bible, I would invite you to turn in that Bible to 1 Samuel chapter 12. We are continuing this journey through the books of 1 and 2 Samuel. Um, and we're, we're looking at how is God going to bring his king out of this conflict. And today we're going to get to this point in, in 1 Samuel 12 where there's this, this, um, this hinge point in the narrative where um, there's, there's a transition from the time of the judges into the time of the monarchy. And so what we're going to see in chapter 12 is this kind of covenant renewal ceremony, this covenant confrontation. That's the, the title of the sermon. And in this we're going to look at how Yahweh covenantally, in this context of relationship, covenantally confronts human unfaithfulness with his own divine faithfulness and power. So we're going to look at how Yahweh covenantally confronts an unfaithful people with his own faithfulness and power. I'm going to read the text in its entirety, pray, and then we will get to work. Starting in 1 Samuel chapter 12. And Samuel said to all Israel, Behold, I have obeyed your voice in, that, in all that you have said to me, and have made a king over you. And now, behold, the king walks before you, and I am old and gray. And behold, my sons are with you, and I have walked before you from my youth until this day. Here I am. Testify against me before the Lord and before his anointed. Whose ox have I taken? Whose donkey have I taken? Or whom have I defrauded? Whom have I oppressed? Or from whose hand have I taken a bribe to blind my eyes with it? Testify against me, and I will restore it to you. They said, You have not defrauded us, or oppressed us, or taken anything from any man's hand. And he said to them, The Lord is witness against you, and his anointed is witness this day, that you have not found anything in my hand. And they said, He is witness. And Samuel said to the people, The Lord is witness who appointed Moses and Aaron and brought your fathers up out of the land of Egypt. Now therefore, stand still that I may plead with you before the Lord concerning all the righteous deeds of the Lord that he performed for you and for your fathers. When Jacob went into Egypt and the Egyptians oppressed them, then your fathers cried out to the Lord. And the Lord sent Moses and Aaron who brought your fathers out of the Egypt, out of Egypt and made them dwell in this place. But they forgot the Lord their God, and he sold them into the hand of Sisera, commander of the army of Hazor, and into the hand of the Philistines, and into the hand of the king of Moab. And they fought against them, and they cried out to the Lord, and said, We have sinned because we have forsaken the Lord and have served the Baals and the Ashtaroth, but now deliver us out of the hand of our enemies, that we may serve you. And the Lord sent Jerubal and Barak and Jephthah and Samuel and delivered you out of the hand of your enemies and on every side, and you lived in safety. And when you saw that Nahash, the king of the Ammonites, came against you, you said to me, No, but a king shall reign over us when the Lord your God was your king. And now, behold, the king whom you have chosen, for whom you have asked, behold, the Lord has set a king over you. And if you will fear the Lord and serve him and obey his voice and not rebel against the commandment of the Lord, and if, you both, uh, if both you and the king who reigns over you will follow the Lord your God, it will be well. But if you will not obey the voice of the Lord, but rebel against the commandment of the Lord, then the hand of the Lord will be against you and your king. Now, therefore, stand still and see this great thing that the Lord will do before your eyes. Is, not the wheat, is it not wheat harvest today? I will call upon the Lord that he may send thunder and rain, and you shall know and see that your wickedness is great, which you have done in the sight of the Lord, and asking for yourselves a king. So Samuel called upon the Lord, and the Lord sent thunder and rain that day, and all the people greatly feared the Lord and Samuel. 
And all the people said to Samuel, Pray for your servants to the Lord your God, that we may not die, for we have added to all our sins this evil, to ask for ourselves a king. And Samuel said to the people, Do not be afraid. You have done all this evil. Yet do not turn aside from following the Lord, but serve the Lord with all your heart. And do not turn aside after empty things that cannot profit or deliver, for they are empty. For the Lord will not forsake his people for his great namesake, because it has pleased the Lord to make you a people for himself. Moreover, as for me, far be it from me that I should sin against the Lord by ceasing to pray for you, and I will instruct you in the good and the right way. Only fear the Lord and serve him faithfully with all your heart, for consider what great things he has done for you. But if you still do wickedly, you shall be swept away, both you and your king. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord will stand forever. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, Lord, there is none like you who has created all things of nothing by word of your power in the space of six days and all very good. You made a people for yourself. You redeemed a people for yourself out of slavery in Egypt. You sent your son Jesus to redeem your people at the cost of his life and blood. And through the power of your resurrection, we now live as your people. Father, we ask that in that resurrection power of the Spirit with whom we are clothed with power, that we would sit under this word preached. Father, that your word uh, would be applied as a balm to our hearts and our minds. That you would teach us by the power of your word and spirit to not fear the great evil in our hearts, but to rather fear you and love you and serve you faithfully with all our hearts. Father, we ask that... You would teach us what it means to be a covenant people, a people for your own possession, a people that you have made for yourself. Lord, we ask that even in this time, you would, by the power of this word and spirit, that you would transform us from one degree of glory to the next, that you, as our great Father, um, might have for yourself a people that are growing more and more into the likeness of your Son, Jesus. Lord, we love you. We pray that you would, in your grace and your gentleness and your power, confront our sin and cover us with grace. We love you, Lord, and we pray this all in your holy and powerful name. Amen. Uh, When Lindsay and I got married 12 years ago, uh, there were very few decisions that I was uh, involved in. Um, But one of those decisions in which I was involved was the the song that we danced to for our first dance. And the song that we danced to was this song called uh, Dancing in the Minefields by Andrew Peterson. And uh, the the song, in some ways, kind of told our story. The first uh, verse opens up with, uh, I was 19, you were 21, the year we got engaged. And everyone said we were much too young, but we did it anyway. We bought the rings for 40 each from a pawn shop down the road, set our vows, and took the leap now 15 years ago. And we went dancing in the minefields. Um, We liked that line partially because we didn't receive super enthusiastic encouragement to get married at the time when we were, because we were a little young. Um, But we also were very, very, very open and honest about the fact that when two sinners came together uh, to say, I do, to take those vows publicly in front of God and witnesses, that it was not going to be sailing off into the sunset with this delightly delightfully smooth, easygoing life. If you've been married for longer than one day, you know that it's, it's not sailing off in the sunset. Really, it is dancing in the minefield because you have these two fallen, sinful people in close proximity to one another in a fallen world. What did you think was going to happen? And so in marriage, 
the thing that keeps you together is this covenant promise that even though you're dancing through the minefields, you have this covenant relationship that does not easily get forsaken or walked away from. There is a promise that knits you and holds you together in that covenant relationship. And that's exactly what we see play out in 1 Samuel 12. We see this history of covenant relationship between God and his people that has been plagued with sin and unbelief. But here, in that context of the covenant, God confronts his people with his past faithfulness in the face of their unfaithfulness and his present power in the face of their weakness. So let's look now at how they are confronted with the past. Um, the thing about chapter 12 in 1 Samuel is that it comes right after chapter 11. And so the, the people of Israel had just been rescued from Nahash, uh, the Ammonite king, by their, by their anointed king Saul, and they go to Gilgal to celebrate, to have this kind of covenant renewal ceremony. And so that's where we are right now. And Samuel said to all Israel in verse 1 at this, at this ceremony, Behold, I have obeyed your voice in all that you have said to me, and have made a king over you. So Samuel, what he's doing here in the midst of this celebration is that he's kind of announcing the beginning of the end. There's this hinge point in redemptive history where they are transitioning out of the time of the judges and they're transitioning into this monarchy. So in a very real sense, Samuel is stepping down as leader and now will only continue as prophet for a a time. but so what he's doing is he's looking at himself and he's asking them to to look at me. um, Haven't I been faithful? Haven't I been a good judge? Haven't I done right by you? Who have I defrauded? Who have I taken a bribe from? What he's doing is that he's setting himself up as a leader under the rule and the reign of Yahweh, the great king, the only true king of Israel. And he's saying, look at what I've done. Not because he's trying to uh, uh, boast himself up, not that he's trying to make himself look impressive. What he's saying is that he has operated in this covenantal framework. He hasn't taken anything. He hasn't taken a bribe. He hasn't defrauded. He has mishpatted Yahweh's mishpat. He has done righteousness by uh, the rule and the reign of Yahweh. And so, in a sense, Samuel's the right man for this job. He's a legitimate leader. He's, the, he's God's anointed leader for this time. And what he's doing is he's, he's stepping down. So he's leading with according to Yahweh's uh, lordship, where he's acknowledging that he's not some kind of uh, maniacal religious cult leader that's going to keep power at all costs. No, this is a man that's saying, Yahweh is Lord, Yahweh is king, I have operated in Yahweh's framework. Um, and so we need to understand that this relationship, that this uh, rule is not about you and me, this is about who God is and what God has done. And that is living according to his law, to his mishpat, his righteousness. And this is not just something that God has worked in and through Samuel in his good leadership conduct. This is something that God has worked throughout time, space, covenant history. And we see that alluded to in this record of what has happened. But before we get to that, kids, I have a very important question for you. And I think I I know the answer that I'm going to get from some of you. But just tell me some songs that you like, kids. I want to hear some of the songs that you like. Yes, Leo. Hark the Herald Angels Sing. Absolutely, that's a, that's a bop. That's a good one. What else? What, are you, what else do you like, kids? I thought this was going to be a much more exciting thing to answer. You guys just hate music? No? Okay. I'm going to wait for which Taylor Swift song you're going to say, Ray and Simone. 
Lover by Taylor Swift. Okay, I'm not familiar with that. That sounds like a deep cut. I don't, I don't know that one. Uh, kids, do you, any of you else like, oh yes, Margaret, sweetheart. The same as Leo. You know what? That, that makes sense. That makes sense. All right. Well, um, okay. So I thought you were going to be a little, a little more enthusiastic about the songs. But, uh, you know, what happens when you sing a song over and over again, the, the words get kind of stuck in your heart and your mind, and they, they rattle around. And it's just something that you, that you kind of, that gets in your bones and you know. Especially if it's got that kind of catchy riff that you just kind of keep repeating over and over and over and over again until your parents ask you to stop asking Alexa to play that song. But what we have here in verses 6 through 11 in particular, is that you have this kind of rehearsal of covenant history. And in fact, some scholars were articulating that this is almost like some kind of early creed that Israel would recite, where they would say, the Lord is witness who appointed Moses and Aaron and brought your fathers up out of the land of Egypt. Now therefore stand still that I may plead with you before the Lord concerning all the righteous deeds of the Lord that he performed for you and for your fathers. And then they go in to say, he goes in to say, when Jacob went into Egypt and then kind of rehearses what happened in Egypt, then what happened when they got in the land of Canaan. Um, This is almost like a covenant song that Israel sang over and over and over again. I think it's upwards of of almost 125 references in the Bible. That this was a a covenant retelling of God's faithfulness. We did this thing and then God delivered us. We did this thing and God delivered delivered us. God's saving acts in the history of Israel are a testimony to his faithful covenant character, just like Samuel was testifying to his own faithful covenant character. God, in his righteousness and his faithfulness and his justice, would always overthrow the enemies of his people. It would always bring them out of slavery. He did it with Pharaoh. He did it with Eglon, king of Moab. He did it with the Canaanites. He did it over and over again because he is the Lord of all history. Now, it's not just a story, though. The Bible is very clear that history is not just history. It's not just telling you things that happen. Samuel's telling them this history because there's a level of which God did this for your fathers. He's doing it again for you now. So now it is your turn, generation of Israel, to believe in the Lord and to trust in his promises for yourselves, not just uh, living on the faith of your fathers. And so this is a theological history where Samuel is saying, God has acted like this, God will continue to act like this, and you have to believe in him. It's an opportunity and an obligation to believe in the same God who saved your fathers. You cannot just look at history and say things were good back then and you can't rest on those laurels now. Samuel is saying that today, as long as it's called today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as it were. Their faith has to become your faith. But what happened in the midst of all that, even when they know the stories, they know the stories of uh, Egypt and the ten plagues, they know the stories of Ehud and stabbing Eglon in the stomach, they know the stories of how God had delivered their people from time and time again against oppressive regimes. But then when Nahash, when Nahash the Ammonite came, you didn't say, Yahweh save us necessarily, you wanted a king to come and save you, and this was a great wickedness, Samuel says. Because you are not acknowledging the Lord's rule. You are not trusting in Yahweh to save you. But despite your sin, despite your sin, despite your rejection, the Lord through his anointed still saved you from Nahash and the Ammonites. 
And so what God is doing here through his anointed prophet Samuel is God is confronting the continual tendency for his people to look to Baals and Ashtaroths and the worthless things, the idols to deliver them instead of the living and true God who has time and time again faithfully, covenantally rescued his people throughout history. And so what we need to do, because we're not really worried about transitioning from a judgeship to a monarchy, uh, we need to be worried about how do we live as faithful people, even when we are plagued with our own deep faithlessness in, in ourselves. We need to know this. Yahweh is not in the business of giving up on you. Yahweh is not in the business of giving up on his people. There's a very real tendency in our culture right now that when somebody becomes toxic or problematic, you just go no contact. You cut them out of your life. Um, you don't want that kind of energy. You don't want that kind of evil. So if there's somebody, person that you hung out with, person that you spent time with, and they just became too much, the kind of posture that we have is, I'm out. No more. And, and even a lot of times when people think about marriage in a non-Christian way, they think about marriage in this incredibly pragmatic solution where it's, you know, I'm going to find economic security when I get married. I'm going to double my income. We're going to go double income, no kids. Or I'm going to find that person with whom I'm physically compatible and I'm going to get real and true and lasting kind of sexual fulfillment in this relationship. But then, and that works for a while. That works really well for a while. But the moment somebody stops being useful... The moment a relationship becomes difficult, without that kind of covenantal understanding, you can just cut and run. And so as God's disciples, as followers of Jesus, we have to understand two things. One, when we sin, we ought not to be surprised by it. Do not be surprised when you sin or when somebody in close proximity sins against you. Uh, This story is not just a story of Israelites in Egypt. This is our story yesterday, today, and tomorrow. Uh, Pining for something, looking to something other than Yahweh for salvation. And so don't be surprised when you sin. But here's the, the much bigger implication. We cannot be, as God's people, quick to give up on each other. Look, I'm not going to tell you how to live your life with with your friends that aren't in our church, but as a covenant community, we cannot be in the business of giving up on each other, especially when we sin against each other, especially when we have these egregious, obvious sins. That is the time where we lean into each other as God's people, and we do what Paul writes in Galatians 6, where we bear one another's burdens. Brothers and sisters, the world wants to give up on somebody when they're problematic and toxic and terrible. But for God's people, our implication is that if God was so faithful to a faithless people, how ought then we to live as his covenant people? By loving one another, bearing one another's burdens, inconveniencing ourselves uh, for each other. I'll t- I'm going to tell you a quick story. Josh, I'm going to call you out. I'm sorry. Last night, some of us guys were over at the Harlan's house because um, our wives are out skiing or doing whatever this weekend. And as we're leaving, Peter picked me up and drove me home. And, and Peter's tire was like flat on the rim. And Josh was behind us. And instead of like getting annoyed that like the van was in his way, he stopped his car, got out, got his fix a flat, got his pump. And we... I mean, these guys, not me, these guys like got Peter's tire up and running. Josh could have easily said, 
this is annoying and inconvenient, and i got to get my kids, kids home to bed. But no, he stopped, he inconvenienced himself, and he was bearing the burden of Peter's flat tire that you still probably need to get fixed. Um, but we'll cross that bridge. Josh doesn't have to do that for you. We can, you know. Um, but, but that is an example of the covenant, uh, Christians inconveniencing themselves to bear a burden of a brother or sister. That's the picture that we have to get as God's people God was like this with his people, so he calls us uh, to, to love one another, love covering a multitude of sins. And, and this is a difficult thing, because when you forgive somebody, when you bear, with another, bear one another's burdens, when you inconvenience yourself over and over and over again, you're going to look like two things to the world. You're going to look crazy. Why would you waste your time with that person? Why would you keep doing that? Or you're going to look weak. Because it's like, why do you keep indulging? Why do you keep indulging? Why can't you just cut them out of your life and move on? But the Lord chose what was weak in the world to shame the strong. This is not the weakness of the Christian faith. This is the strength that, that like our Lord Jesus, uh, came not to serve, uh, not, not to be served, but to serve. So we as his followers need to bear with the failings of the weak, bear with the weaknesses of our brothers and sisters, inconvenience ourselves because <laughs> he loved us so we could love others. He loved us first, and so therefore we can express that tangibly and physically. It's part, that's another reason why we have deacons in our church. Deacons help express tangibly the love that we have um, for our God. I mean, this is another thing about the men that are doing deacon training. They all came early this morning to help set everything up. I was so flustered this morning that everything was set up so quickly, I didn't know what to do with my hands. But, but Nathan and Brady, these guys came early and they helped set everything up. And so this is just ways that we, that we inconvenience ourselves by waking up early, by uh, lifting something heavy, because we want to show our love for one another as Christians. And so living covenantally, Living with a faithful God looks wildly different from the world, but this is what we are called to do as Christians. But God does not simply confront his faithless people with his own story of faithfulness. He confronts them with a very present power in verses 13 through 25. So in verse 13, Samuel has this great hinge point in the chapter, hinge point in redemptive history, when he says, And now, behold... The king whom you have chosen, for whom you have asked, behold, the Lord has set a king over you. We've talked a lot about those two phrases from the book of of Judges. In those days, there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Um, The issue was not, not having a king. They weren't immoral and rebellious, wicked sinners because they lacked a king. They were immoral, rebellious, wicked sinners because they were immoral, rebellious, wicked sinners. And a king was going to happen to constrain that a little bit. And so here, now there's going to be a king, but there is still not just peace and, and, and harmony. There is still stuff that needs to be dealt with. So God has set his king over you. Now, I'm going to ask another question of you children. Maybe this will be easier to answer. I don't know. Um, if your mom and dad asks you to set the table, what do you do? You do it. Oh, that's very obedient. Um, what else do you do? What, like, what do you have to do to set the table? Yeah, Margaret. You do it. Okay. What do you have to do to set the table? What are the necessary ingredients for this to happen? Yeah, Simone. 
Okay, you got to get silverware out of the drawer. What else do you need? Yeah, Leo. Napkins, of course, because you get food on your face. What else do you need, Margaret? Water pitcher, got to stay hydrated. What else do you need? Yeah. Plates, because you don't eat off the table like some savage. You know, you need water pitcher. You need silverware. You need plates. Do you set them wherever you want on the table? How do you put them on the table? You just dump it all in a pile? No, you're not Philistines. You're, you're Americans. You, you have it in an order, right? You know, mom has her spot. Dad has his spot. You know, you have your spot. And you put everything out in this kind of neat, orderly fashion so you can sit there and eat and have a pleasant family dinner. In chapter, in chapter 12, verse 13, where, where Samuel says, The Lord has set his king over you. The first time that, that Hebrew word is used in the Bible is very, very early. It's in Genesis 1. And it's simply the word for setting something somewhere. And it's what God does with the sun and the stars and the moon and the heavens. And he placed the man in the garden. This is a God who sovereignly and powerfully and faithfully orchestrates all events of human history to bring about his plan for his purposes, for his glory. There's a a, a crazy theological reality in this chapter. Israel asked for something sinful. And wicked when they asked for a king. But God in his sovereign mercy gave them that king and set that king over them. Yet God is not charged with sin that the people are. So somehow in God's mysterious providence, he does the sinful thing that his people ask for. And he is in charge of it, yet is not accounted guilty. And so when we look at this, we need to look at a God who is not just faithful and sympathetic and is there for you and will listen to you. We have a God who is powerful and mighty and is, and is there making sure his plan gets worked out for his own glory. So one of the things that he does is how, how that manifests is that in this covenant relationship, it manifests in both the blessings of the covenant, but also the curses of the covenant. There's this very distinct uh, portion in, in Deuteronomy chapter 28 and 29, I think, where God's people divide themselves into two camps and stand on opposite mountains, and they yell aspects of the covenant back and forth to each other, the blessings for obedience and the curses for disobedience. And so that's the same framework that Samuel offers here. He says, if you will fear the Lord and serve him and obey his voice and not rebel against the commandment of the Lord, if both you and the king who reigns over you will follow the Lord your God, it will be well. There is blessing when there is covenantal obedience. Again, using the marriage framework, um, when you begin to have conflict with your, with your spouse and you sin against them and they sin against you, um, your relationship is different. It's, it's icier. It's, uh, it's less pleasant. Um, there's just a vibe that gets thrown off in the household, right? But when there's love and self-sacrifice and service, the entire um, ethos of the household changes. There, but, but just because you sin against each other doesn't mean the covenant's gone. You're still in that covenant relationship. But when there's disobedience, as it were, things get rocky and difficult. Likewise, in this covenant context with, with Yahweh and his people, if you serve me and love me and fear me, it'll, go, it'll be well with you and your king. But if you do not... There is a curse that comes with this covenant as well. If you do not obey the voice of the Lord, verse 15, but rebel against the commandment of the Lord, then the hand of the Lord will be against you and your king. Notice, 
there is not a threat of covenant removal at this point, but simply the fact that the hand of the Lord will be against the people. And so in this covenant framework, God is powerful both to bless and to curse his people for obedience and then disobedience. And so it's one thing to, to have some kind of threat or promise. And parents, you, you know this very well. Sometimes your, your kids do something and you threaten them with something and... I don't know about you, but sometimes I do that and then I regret it because I don't know that I can actually follow through on my threat or promise to my children. But what God does here in this covenant renewal ceremony is that he is speaking these words through his prophet and they do not simply go out into the air and kind of hang there in the ether without power. This promise comes with a covenant sign, as it were. Is not today the wheat harvest, Samuel says? This would have been a time during the year when It would not have been rainy. It would not have been stormy. It would have been bright and clear and the perfect time to harvest your wheat. But so that you know that his words have power. Yahweh calls down rain and thunder and confirms the guilt of the Israelites and the power of his words. And so think about this picture. They're gathered there at Gilgal. They're celebrating a victory over their enemies. And here God is confronting them with his own righteousness and their own unrighteousness. And the same way that he defeated the Philistines in chapter 7 with a thunderclap from the heavens, the Lord thunders and rains down upon the people here at Gilgal. In the same way in which Pharaoh was overthrown by the ten plagues, when God rained down fire upon the Egyptian cities and crops, the Lord sends thunder and rain upon the wheat fields so that the people know that his words have power. And seeing this, verse 18, the people feared him. They feared with a great fear. And so we have to wrestle with this because we have to go, what kind of God do we worship? And if you get the attributes of God mixed up and you get them out of balance, you either get a God who is so all-powerful and almighty that he can't possibly relate to his people, or you get a God who is so enthusiastically empathetic that he has no power over his people. But here we see the love and the mercy of God come together with his power because we have a God who's powerful not just to make it rain from the heavens in the wheat harvest season. We have a God who is powerful to intercede for his people and to forgive them for their sins sins. As Samuel calls down this this thunder and, and rain from the Lord, the people feared and they said to Samuel, pray for your servants to the Lord your God that we may not die for we have added to all our sins this evil to ask for ourselves a king. And then Samuel says these beautiful, beautiful words. He said to the people, do not be afraid. You have done all this evil Yet do not turn aside from following the Lord, but serve the Lord with all your heart. Verse 22, for the Lord will not forsake his people for his great namesake, because it pleased the Lord to make you a people for himself. God in his faithfulness and his goodness gave his people two things in this moment. A prophet for whom they can hear the word of God, who can pray for them, who can priestly, in a priestly manner, intercede for them with his prayer, but also this promise of forgiveness. Yes, you sinned greatly in asking for this king. You did that. But don't be afraid. Serve the Lord with all your heart. 
because it pleased him for his own namesake to make you a people for himself. God's covenant relationship is not dependent on your faithfulness to him. You are blessed when you are faithful. But God's covenant relationship with you is established by His word and His promise and His power and His authority and His redeeming love. And so when we read this, when we read about this promise, do not be afraid. The Lord will not forsake His people. Those words are for you as well. Those words are for you. And here's the implication. Don't be surprised by your sin. Don't wallow in it, brothers and sisters. Do not be afraid to repent and turn from your sin and not linger there. Space and land, it's a very significant part of the biblical story. God brought Israelites out of Egypt, out of slavery, into a land flowing with milk and honey. And they were taking possession of this land, and they were displacing the foreign, the, uh, the foreign nations and the, and the foreign idols. And, and, and hear these words, hear, hear where the Lord said, um, I'm sorry, hold on just a second. Do not turn aside from following the Lord, but serve the Lord with all your heart. Do not turn aside after empty things that cannot profit or deliver, for they are empty. That word there, he could have used the word idol, but that's the Hebrew word for tohu. That's wasteland, wilderness. Don't live in the wilderness. Don't live in the wasteland. And when we sin and we dwell in our sin and we dwell in our own wickedness and we wallow in the muck like pigs just kind of delighting in our own sin, that's us living in that kind of tohu, that wasteland, that wilderness. But what Samuel is telling the people is that the Lord does not want you to live there. The Lord does not want you to live in the wasteland. He doesn't want you to wallow in your sin. You need to turn from those things, fear the Lord, and serve the Lord with all your heart. One of the things I love when, when John prays, when John prays, he always prays for us to learn how to hate our sin. And to be sure, we should hate our sin. And part of that means hating the fact that we hate ourselves when we sin. You need, one of the things that we are maybe caricatured for as Reformed believers is, is having too great a view of our own sinfulness and our own wickedness and, and, and kind of navel-gazing and just dwelling on the fact that we are desperately wicked and sick. Who can understand these hearts? But brothers and sisters, we don't want to live in the wilderness. We don't want to live in the wasteland. We don't want to live in the mucky muck where we just dwell on our own sin. We, as God's people, have the opportunity and obligation to do what the Apostle Paul says, forget what lies behind. Forget what lies behind and look forward, straining ahead for the upward goal of what is found in Christ Jesus. That is the, the fight. That is the battle of the Christian life. And you want to know why I think um, I pick out all the songs every week uh, for worship. Um, and one of the reasons why, because technically in a, in a PCA church, the session, we have oversight of the worship service, including the music that we do. And it's a really important part of, of ministry, I think, because of this. Songs have that way of getting stuck in your head, right? And rattling around and kind of staying there. And when we are singing good, rich, doctrinally sound songs, brothers and sisters, that's your battle cry, that's a way for you to fight against the tendency to have those intrusive thoughts where you just dwell on your own wickedness and your own despair and your own insufficiency. And that music that we sing that has a way of getting in there has a way of washing that out and reminding you of true things that God loves you, that God hates sin, that God forgave your sin in Christ.
So one of the implications from this text is one of the ways that we that we serve God with all of our heart and when we fear the Lord is what are we filling our minds with? What's rattling around up here? Um, not all of you come from a, a tradition of, of catechizing your children, um, but it's a beautiful thing that if you learn a catechism, even now as an adult, you just have that truth of God that rattles around in your heart and mind. And so it's something that when life gets difficult, when you have to go dancing through that minefield, you can hold on to that true thing that's in there. Because that's the whole trick of this thing, is that we can talk about God's covenant love all we want. We can talk about God's covenant faithfulness even while we're unfaithful, but we still have to do the walking right now in this life. We can't sit and just wax theological about how good God is and how great God is and then be immune from what we just sang in Psalm 23, even though we walk through death's dark veil. We still have to go walking. We still have to live our lives. We still have to go on as disciples. And so it can be very tempting, very easy to despair in these moments, to say, how can I go on? I don't have enough power. I don't have enough strength. I don't have, I'm just not good enough to do this. How can I keep doing this thing? And then we have to remember that it's not about our own strength. At the end of Andrew Peterson's song, Dancing in the Minefields, he says it like this. Because we bear the light of the Son of Man, there's nothing left to fear. So I'll walk with you in the shadow lands until the shadows disappear. For he promised not to leave us, and his promises are true. So in the face of all this chaos, baby, I can dance with you. God's power and God's promise come together in the form of a person who came to rescue you, who while you were still sinners came to rescue you, who while you were still doing shameful, wicked things was himself publicly hung and shamed on a cross before a crowd of witnesses. And they were like, if you're the son of God, bring yourself down off the cross there. And Jesus was crucified where all of the curses of God's covenant promises were poured out on him. If if you think about that first promise in Genesis 15, um, he's going to crush the head of the serpent, but his is going to be bruised. So on the cross, Jesus is crushing publicly the head of Satan, crushing publicly all of your sin, crushing publicly all of your shame. But in the process, he himself is wounded, is stricken, is afflicted, is in the body on the tree, bearing all of God's wrath and all of curse against our sin and all of the evil and wickedness that ever has been in this earth. And he did that for you and for me to make sure that his promises were not just said with words but were demonstrated with power and then in the resurrection you see Jesus raised by the power of spirit and ascends on high and at the ascension what does he do you then get filled with the power that comes from on high in the person of the Holy Spirit and so that your life now is a witness is a testimony from Jerusalem to Judea to the ends of the earth of God's covenant faithfulness and promise that you are somebody for whom God was long-suffering. And so you can go and be somebody who is long-suffering for the glory of God and the good of your neighbors. Jesus was raised from the dead so that the power and the faithfulness of God over death itself was demonstrated. And that we are personally appropriated into that through the work of the Spirit, applying that to our hearts and our minds. 
And so, brothers and sisters, because of that, you can be confronted about your unfaithfulness and know that there's security and a promise that his word is for you, his goodness is for you, his grace is for you, and he's never going to leave you nor forsake you. And so because of that truth, because of that promise, we can indeed walk through the shadow lands until the shadows disappear and Christ comes back into glory. I don't know if you've ever thought about this, but wedding vows are nothing more than telling a story in the future. You're assuming that this relationship is going to go through different seasons of sickness and health and want and in plenty. And so what you have in Christ is the grace of being brought into a story that's still unfolding, and you know the ending, and it's going to be glorious. Let's pray. King Jesus, you came as God's word incarnate to save your people from their sins. You came with power, with mercy, with grace, with love, with tenderness, with ears that hear, with eyes that see, with feet that served, with, with hands that, that lifted up the weary. But Jesus, you did all of this because you went to the cross and you saved a sinful people for your own glory, for your own namesake. So Father, teach us what it means to live as people in covenant faithfulness and covenant power because you are a God who keeps that covenant relationship with us. We love you, Lord, and we thank you for this time and we pray all this in your holy and powerful name. Amen.